Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, uh, technology, and public policy. These SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during the work from home period to sort of replicate what we do at our SALT conference, which, which I know one of our guests today uh, was at our SALT conference in 2019. But what we really try to do is provide a window for our, our audience into the minds of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for big important ideas that we think are shaping uh, the future of the world. We're very excited today to bring a very uh, relevant and, and topical discussion to you today with two of the great uh, American mayors and two African-American mayors who, who have been pioneers in their communities and, and have definitely been leaders in, in tackling some of the issues of racial inequality and, and social activism that we're facing today. So those two guests that we're very thrilled to be welcoming today are Mayor Stephen K. Benjamin of Columbia, South Carolina, and Mayor Michael uh, D. Tubbs of Stockton, California. And I'll introduce, introduce you to the bios of these two great mayors before Anthony allows them to dive deeper into their backgrounds. But uh, Mayor Benjamin has been the mayor of Columbia, South Carolina since July of 2010. He's the first African-American mayor of that city uh, in the city's history. And before serving as mayor, he worked in the Columbia area as an attorney and served on uh, very various charitable organizations. Mayor Benjamin previously served as the 76th president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. So he's a leader uh, within the mayoral community in the United States. Mayor Benjamin is, uh, I would say, better half, but as Anthony would say, better nine-tenths. His wife is the Honorable DeAndrea Gist Benjamin, a judge in the, in the South Carolina's 5th Judicial District. Uh, together, they have two beautiful daughters, and he graduated with a BA and a JD uh, from the University of South Carolina, where he served as the undergraduate student body president during his time as an undergraduate and as the Student Bar Association president during his time at the USC Law School. So we're very thrilled to be uh, welcoming Mayor Benjamin today to SALT Talks. Our second guest is Mayor Michael D. Tubbs, who is the mayor of Stockton, California. Uh, Michael is 29 years old. He's the youngest uh, mayor in the United States. Upon taking office in January of 2017, he both became Stockton's youngest mayor and the city's first African-American mayor. So he was a pioneer in multiple ways. Uh, Michael is also uh, the youngest mayor, as I mentioned, in the history of the country representing a city with a population of over 100,000 residents. Uh, before becoming mayor, Michael served as Stockton's District 6, District 6 uh, City Council member, where he was elected at the age of 22 in 2013, and he became uh, one of the youngest city council members in the country at that time. He was included in Fortune Magazine's 2018 Top 40 Under 40 and Forbes Magazine's 2018 list of 30 Under 30. He graduated in 2012 from Stanford University with a bachelor's and master's degree with honors. Uh, he's been a college course instructor for the Aspire Public Schools and a fellow at the Stanford Institute of Design and the Emerson Collective. He's a Stockton native and a proud product of the Stockton public school system. So we want to thank um, uh, Mayor Michael Tubbs and Mayor Stephen Benjamin uh, for joining us on the talk today. Uh, conducting the interview will be Anthony Scaramucci, who is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm as well as the chairman of SALT, uh, which you all know because you're here today. So I'm going to turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Reminder, if you have any questions for Mayor Tubbs or Mayor Benjamin, uh, please type them into the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony. Hi, well, John. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, both of you mayors, thank you so much for being on with us. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a 
cartoon in the New Yorker, and I thought it summed up our times. It was a it was a picture of an anchor person at a desk, and they basically said, "Well, we just heard the weather from the Democratic weatherman. Now let's get the weather from the Republican one." And and the point being is that we're now arguing over the facts, and so our civil debate has gone awry because we can't even stipulate what the facts are in our society anymore. And I thought it was a very interesting point as we start to segment, and you can see it in relative uh, civil strife that's going on in the country. And so my first question, and, and I'll start with you, Mayor Benjamin, and then maybe uh, Mayor Tubbs can answer it afterwards, and then we can just have a free-flowing conversation. But my question is, what are the facts right now? Uh, and and what, where do you see the facts in terms of our society? And where do you think the society needs to go to heal itself? Oh, wow. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, uh, thank you, Anthony. And thank, thank you, Darcy, for, um, for reading my uh, intro just like I wrote it. I always appreciate that. The, Your mother uh, wrote that, Mayor. Who's kidding who? I mean, that was unbelievable. It'd, it'd be 20 pages, long, 20 pages long if my mama wrote it. <laughs> uh, you know, the, um, the facts are um, we are dealing with the greatest um, public health uh, crisis pandemic since, uh, since 1918. Uh, that we are dealing with, the, with uh, an incredibly inconsistent economy. Uh, the first quarter we saw probably the greatest economic disruption since 1932. And right now on the streets of America, we're hearing incredible amounts of pain and, and, and passion, unlike anything we've seen uh, nationally since 1968, all wrapped up into a couple of months. Uh, we're, and at the top of the, of the food chain, at the, at the head of this $23 trillion GDP, uh, that um, that this past uh, quarter we saw the national debt drop, go up significantly, watch GDP drop what about five percent or so. Uh, we have political uh, um, uh, dissension, disruption. Um, it, 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 I mean, we're in a, we're in an amazingly challenging place where I believe it's time for um, for us to have leaders and realize that you know it, at least as as it relates to those of us who are who are proud. Uh, Americans who recognize the challenges we face in this country uh, um, for, for, for hundreds of years, working to become, become that more perfect union, that there's no red way or blue way, that at the very least, let's try and focus on a red, white, and blue approach to uh, building that more perfect union. The reality is, is that each and every one of us, and that now we'll tell you, that's probably, and I'll talk more about it later, that's probably the silver lining of all the things that we're going through, is that it has activated so many folks to realize their individual responsibility, that the government not, it shouldn't solve, they can't solve all your problems, public health professionals can't, the business community can't, that uh, philanthropy can't do it all, that really we all have an individual role to step up and create this world in which you know we wanna live, we wanna make sure our parents get their due, but, but, but even more importantly, making sure we're creating a, a, a world where people like my daughters and, and Michael's beautiful young son can really have the opportunity to live up to their God-given potential. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a time for leaders. I mean, it's, it's probably the most, it's, it's certainly easily the most challenging time I've faced in my many years uh, in, uh, in government and public service at different levels. Um, but, you know, we're up to the task. I, I feel strongly that America's mayors are, are leading from the front and will continue to do so. Mayor Tubbs. Um, well, first, let me say it's always good to be on with um, Mayor Benjamin, who started his term as mayor when I was still a college student. Um, so I'm thankful you're still in this. Rub, rubbing it in, man. Rubbing it in, Mayor. Go hey, ahead. Hey, Jay. All right. I'm bringing out, <laughs> oh. I'm bringing out the brine. You're rubbing <laughs> it in. That's going to be one of my questions for you, Mayor Tubbs. How did you accomplish so much if you added my lifetime with Steve's lifetime? 
and you divide it by two, we're barely you. So we're just trying to figure out how you got to where you are. But Sorry, ahead, keep I, going. I to keep that. going. Keep going, but, Mayor. But to answer the question, I think um, in terms of what's true, what's been kind of silver lining for me is understanding this moment we're in with the greatest global health crisis, as the mayor mentioned, but also the conversation we're having about not just police brutality, but really about equality under the law has been a 400-year conversation in this country. Um, so I think the fact is we've had this conversation before. I think just given the cascading impacts of COVID-19 and now the civil unrest, that it's time for us to really solve these issues. But the facts are, regardless as to how we feel, where we consume news, or what we like the world to be, there is instant, there's institutionalized racism in our country. If you look at everything from who gets loans to how toddlers are treated in preschool, to how discipline is built on elementary school, to who like in every institution, not just policing, there's racial bias. And I think what I've been most heartened about is I'm hearing people who are Republican and Democrats coming to the point like this is not made up, this is true. And let's figure out how do we get towards, towards a solution. Um, I think the fact also is that now is a, a time for real patriots, as Mayor Benjamin said, for people who really believe in what we wrote in that constitution, that we want to form a union with, with where all people are created equal and are, are, are entitled and able to pursue life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that, that we believe in equality under the law for everybody in our country. And, it, and it's great rhetoric. We've seen over the past 400 years, it's hard to put in practice, but I think this moment demands that we push further and push farther to, to get there. Well, you know, I 100% believe that there's institutional racism. And just a quick story. I'm at Harvard Law School my first semester. There are three African-American students, male students in my section. They are walking on Massachusetts Avenue to a convenience store after 11 o'clock at night, and they're arrested by the Cambridge police. I mean, and literally all they were doing was going to get a cup of coffee and, and they blah, blah, blah ensued. 30 years later, there was another incident just like that in Cambridge. And remember, President Obama got involved in it. And so I remember thinking about tying those two things together. My God, there is absolutely institutional racism. So it's a question for both of you. What do you say to those people that say that there isn't institutional racism? I mean, how do you, this is my point about facts. I mean, how do you, debate somebody, well, sir, do you think there's institutional racism? No, I don't think there is. How do you, how do you go about it? How do you debate it? Well, wow. um, I, I would encourage folks to, uh, those who care about, um, about their country, and they're often profess it in, 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 in different ways, um, often politically, to, to really take these opportunities to listen. I mean, I mean, the, you know, my grandma would say the guy gave you the two ears and one mouth for a reason, you should listen twice as much as you talk. And right now, I will tell you that the most edifying and powerful conversations I've had uh, with, with people young enough to be my son, like Mayor Tubbs and, and, and others, is <laughs> I, as I, I, go, I, I went out I, um, and I, I said, I, I spent a lot of time, I have a background in law enforcement, so I spent a lot of time with our, our officers. But I also uh, get out into the streets and sit down with the protesters, um, social distance, wearing a mask, the whole nine yards. But I don't get there and tell them about all the things that we're doing, all the things the government's doing to make their world better. I just sat there and asked them, tell me your stories. I want to hear your stories. And if you hear, listen to what's happening in the world right now, so those, those, those classmates of yours um, from 30 years ago and seeing the same things happening 30 years later, and I assure you, 
uh, 30 years before that, it was, it was actually the law of the land. And 30 years before that, the, the fact that, 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 that structural racism, differential access to goods and services is, is, is real in America, and that we know personally mediated racism. Unconscious bias acted on by those of us who are in, in power is also real. And there's also internalized racism. I mean, uh, the, 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 the challenges that, that we may face as individuals and I, you know, it's it's it is very difficult. We were, you know, we we're chatting a little bit earlier. It's tough when you um, when you when you have to debate facts with people now, uh, and 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 how, um, at least back in the day, you could at least rely on data, and and, and data would may, maybe solve an, an, an argument, and or maybe you could get people to focus on commerce and economy. Uh, and let's at least make sure we prosper together. And it seems like right now the conversation is just is just awry. And, 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 and that's why it's so important for leaders on the, on the national level, state level, local level, but those in, in uh, we're talking about intersectoral leadership, not just the um, uh, public sector, really find ways to, to bring people together, so at least we're listening to each other. But it, it, is, it, is, it, is, it's, it may be the challenge of our times. Yeah, yeah well, well I, I, as the mayor said, I think I'm at the point now where if it was really about sort of data um, driving actions and decision-making, we would just live in a fundamentally different world. I just read something yesterday that said the median wealth of a Black family with a college degree is only 70% of the median wealth of a white family with just a high school diploma. And, and, and stats like that, to me, just really illustrate it's not about just the actions people are taking. It's not about people not having education. It's not about people not working hard. It's, it's something that's systematic, and it's insidious but it's also literally in every institution if i had time we could talk we could go through every institution from the banking system to the school system to the prison system that if the outcomes are the same then the discussion has to be do we really think there's something inferior about black people that leads to these outcomes or is there something that's being done right and i think that's the conversation and we have to have and what i found like mayor benjamin in talking with people that sometimes the data has to be connected with a story and a story of someone, if they don't, if people don't know that they see, touch, feel. So I know when I talk about how, even as mayor, when I go take a run at the local university, a mile, half a mile from my house, each and every time I'm greeted with campus security um, who are circling, because um, they don't realize I'm the mayor. And when they do, they wave and, and drive off. While my friends who aren't black, when they go around the campus, they never see campus police. Um, I know in just sharing those stories, I think it's allowing people um, to, to, to realize that, that wow, that, that the, I had one conversation with some folks in the community. I said, no, I get it. Like the institutions have worked for you and your family. You've seen it work. You guys have made something. I get that. But those same institutions don't work in that way for my family. And when I said it like that, I saw something click like, oh, wow. Because I think part of it is, allowing people to understand that your experience in America, your experience with police, your experience with schools, your experience with banks, your experience with luck, is not a universal experience. And that there's other experience that are, that make your experience less, but your experience is not the only truth. Um, so, so I think that's part of it. And I think it's also having tough conversations like this that are frank and that are honest and are done in a way that has multiple races talking because I was telling people in Stockton last week if it was up to black people to solve racism, institutional racism, it would have been solved. We've been saying for 400 years, this ain't right. We got we got to do something about it. So it's going to take kind of allyships and good, just good people who are saying, you know what, we want everyone to have universal human dignity and 
it's not an easy, that doesn't mean it's easy, um, but it, it's something that I, I would argue is very necessary. Mayor, Mayor Tubbs, do you think something has changed? I'll, I'll ask Benjamin the same question, but the proliferation of the iPhone or the smartphone, where now we're on top of each other, and unfortunately we witnessed the horrific eight minutes and 46 seconds or other situations, the one in Atlanta, uh, do you think something has changed now where now it is so frontal and it's in everybody's faces that it's going to cause a spiritual awakening and that could cause an even bigger evolution? Or do you think we're just going to get more of the same? No, I, I would say we, we can't do more of the same. It, it, it feels different. The, the protests feel different. The civil unrest feels different. And even the actions from people who I wouldn't think would even see the need to change, at least locally, ha ha have been different. And I think part of it is sort of the iPhone, but I think part of it is what you and Mayor Benjamin mentioned when we started. It's the fact that COVID-19 has really has everyone shook and everyone anxious and everyone insecure and almost a shared mm -hmm. sense of national there's no, suffering. There's no racial bias in COVID-19, although we have learned that certain communities have more proliferation of it, but all of us have the same DNA, right? So yeah, well, it was, we're it, all it's, at risk. We're all at risk. And I think what's been fascinating about that, we see this disease, which is not racist, it's a disease, a virus, but we right. see how because of racist systems, that's right. attacked, like some people have worse outcomes. So I think that started mm -hmm. the conversation. Yeah, people are home, yeah. people mm -hmm. are economically anxious, people are stressed, and people are, are tuned in. People are, are really deeply engaged in what's happening. And I think seeing that was just like the straw that broke the camel's, the camel's back. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's a mixture of the iPhone, but I mean, we saw Michael Brown on the iPhone. We saw um, Sandra Bland be, be um, pulled over on the iPhone. Hell, Emmett Till had an open casket funeral. So it's not the first time we've seen sort of suffering in this way, but I think it's the, 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 the time in terms of a time of great transition and anxiety um, in, in this country where people are saying, what's next? What's better? You have the election coming up in November. I think all these things have created the conditions upon which this really sparked um, a, a, a real movement and a real reckoning. Is it different? Is it different, Mayor? Mayor no, Benjamin? I, I could, I could, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I do believe, obviously, you know, we I think the last time I was uh, uh, at Salt with you, Anthony, when we were talking about just, you know, just how rapidly technology is changing the world. You know, uh, Michael and I have done conversations on. On, on AI and automation and advanced machine learning and how it was changing the future of work and how that would disparately impact uh, these various communities. Now, it also happened now to be the same essential workers that can't socially distance, that can't remote work, that don't have access to PPE. Uh, and, and certainly as we adjust to, the, uh, um, uh, to the, the new normal as we work our way through the pandemic, everyone's, like Michael said, at home watching TV. And it was, um, um, I'm not given much to hyperbole but it was the very first time uh, that um, millions of Americans and billions across the world were, were forced to watch a, a, an eight minute and 46 second public ex execution, a, a state, the state sponsored public execution. And, and I, I think it fundamentally broke people's hearts. It, it, it fundamentally changed the way that people saw the reality It humanized that data that Michael was talking about earlier. It, it, put, a, it put a story, a real narrative on, on everyone's mind that, that said, no, I, you know, I've heard the stories. I, you know, I didn't really believe all the facts behind Trayvon, the, the, the imagery and the Rodney King thing. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure about that. You know, Michael Brown, don't, I don't know his history and I, and I don't know, you know, what, what happened. 
um, um, and, and this story or that story and the millions of stories that, that particularly millennials have really, Michael's generation and the Zoomers now have really been sharing, but everyone was forced to watch a, 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 a man rendered um, helpless, you know, die before eyes. And I, I think it broke America's heart and it spurred this energy that now, I think if, if our job as, as leaders in our different spheres is try is, is again how do you get that pain and that passion and turn into progress? How do you how do you utilize our democratic institutions, uh, which are not all government, and, and channel it in a way that you can get real immediate change going in the right direction that gets us past bumper sticker responses like if it's a defund the police, whatever happens to answer. You know what does that really mean to people? Uh, are we talking about finding different ways to invest in actually creating just communities? You know, so that, that's where the leaders step in and you bottle up all that, all, 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 everything happened in this moment and really turn into a real, a real movement that moves the country forward. Uh, I'm gonna kick it over to John Dorsey. He's got a few questions from our audience, Mayor, but I do, I do agree that hopefully this is a seminal moment for all of us where we'll start more healing. But John, go ahead. I know you have a question for both mayors. Yeah, I know, Mayor Tubbs, you alluded to the fact that, you know, black people have been talking about these issues for 400 years. And, and certainly, you know, a lot of people are now uh, talking about police reform and, and changing policing tactics as a result of sort of the social unrest that we've seen. But and then I want to direct this question at Mayor Benjamin. In 2014, you introduced a initiative called Justice for All, which was uh, implemented new training, competitive pay, Diverse, diverse representation and, and different elements of community engagement to strengthen the relationship between law enforcement and the communities in which they serve. And, and I think in general, we're, you know, policing is just one element of institutional racism for sure, but you know, also within policing, it's not just the idea that you know, we, we shouldn't be uh, violently confronting situations that don't need to be violently confronted, but it's just about the relationship between the police and the communities in which they serve. How do we need to rethink in general policing in this country? You know, racism is one element of it, but just in terms of how they engage with, with their uh, constituents. Sure, oh, no, thank you. As, as a city and as a police department, we have a fantastic uh, chief of police. We, we gravitated rapidly towards uh, President Obama's uh, leadership on 21st century policing, recognizing that these generational uh, challenges have existed between uh, law enforcement, the men and women who run towards danger when we're running the other direction, uh, and the communities that they serve, particularly communities of color. So we, we, we formulated Justice for All using a number of the principles of this 21st century policing initiative and decided that we would build uh, a, a department that was focused on first transparency, uh, because that was, that's always been an issue, and on, on accountability and working to build trust. Uh, so we, we had to completely revamp the way in which we recruited and trained our officers. We put our president of our Columbia Urban League on our hiring board, and uh, two years later, 68% of our new hires uh, were, were African-American, Latino, uh, Asian, and, 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 and female, trying to get a force that looked more like the city. We put in incentives for our officers to, 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 to advance in their education, and the things that we valued, obviously, we, we, we put in bonuses in, in place for them to, to meet uh, those, um, uh, those uh, measurements. We also put a, 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 a hiring bonus and also a residency bonus in place. Uh, so an officer who wants to move into a home in our city, because it's important that, that there be some type of an emotional connection between those officers and the communities they serve, uh, that an officer can move into a home, no down payment, low interest rate, uh, 30 year. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a really creative program that we modified to meet our officers. But we also went 100% body cam. 
we we started recording uh, video and audio recording of our of our of interviews of those charged with, with violent crimes, and then using data, trying to humanize that data to share information and use of force, and uh, how uh, how if there's a police involved shooting, how it's independently investigated. So all again to try and change the the framework in a way that's systemic. That whether uh, Mayor Benjamin was there or, or Chief Holbrook was there, these gains would be sustained over a period of time. And I say all that all that to say, John, that even those things that we did in the wake of Michael Brown's uh, death in Ferguson. Um, it's still not enough right now. Uh, we're, 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 right now, we're at a moment where we're not talking only about reinventing policing as we know it, but even reimagining it. Re reimagining how you provide for safer communities. Um, um, Michael, um, quoting um, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, talks about, about, about poverty uh, being, being a form of violence and, and, and other ways in which you can rebuild communities. And maybe even, yes, it, it, we have cops right now, guys, overworked and underpaid they're, they're, because they're doing everything. We're asking them to be mental health counselors, asking them to be social workers. We're asking them to be, you know, all these things uh, that, that go beyond being um, guardian or, or, or warrior that they ought not be doing. We really train them to make sure that they're well-rounded, have a skill set, but that's not their job. And we've got to find ways to create safer communities uh, so that when you have an issue that's a, a humble or not a, not a real public safety threat, you don't need strangers with guns showing up regardless of, as to how altruistic they are. So, so, so we, we, we made some strides then in 2014, but right now we're at a point where we're even reimagining the role of our law enforcers and our role in, in, in helping create healthier, stronger, more vibrant and, and equitable communities. Thank you, Mayor Benjamin. I wanna direct a, a follow-up to, to Mayor Tubbs. You touched a little bit on, on incentivizing educational growth within the police force. Mayor Tubbs, I know you've done a lot of things in terms of trying to promote education uh, within Stockton. Obviously, you prioritize education from a young age. You're a, a graduate of Stanford University with honors. Um, you secured over $20 million in philanthropic capital for Stockton Scholars, which is a program that you aim to triple the number of Stockton students graduating from college. How do we level the playing field in terms of public education in the United States? Yeah, that's a um, great question. Um, and I think and I appreciate you asking that because this moment, I think the policing conversation that we're having nationally is, is just symptomatic of a, of a wider conversation that includes things like education. Um, so I think to level the education playing field, all the research says it really starts at zero to three. Um, so like Mayor Benjamin said, like poverty is a great indicator of educational attainment. I'm um, so doing everything we can to, to prevent families from being in poverty or helping families who are in poverty leave poverty. Um, all the research tells us that between zero and three, um, children do word acquisition and acquire language, and that has a big impact. And also in terms of adverse childhood experiences, so I think using, again, data about how adverse childhood experiences or childhood trauma impact brain development, which impacts academic success, and doing what we can in terms of intervention. So it looks like what they have in Providence, Rhode Island, where they have social workers and other people work with families to make sure kids are reading and, 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 and hearing um, enough words. It means policy like paid family leave and things of that sort. So parents can actually be home um, with their children and, and help to be their first educators. It means things like universal preschool. Um, but I think also if you look at the data, the data tells us that um, kids of color are more likely to go to schools with the least qualified teachers and the least funding, which seems just 
<laughs> seems like it should be the opposite, particularly if we're talking about parity. So I think it's also looking at in, in terms of how do you make sure that every child in every school has a qualified teacher in the classroom who's well-trained and well-resourced? How do you make sure that, that they're, they have curriculum and, and, and education? And I think part of it starts with, again, at a national level Supreme Court edict around making education a fundamental right. Because in this country, based off um, the Seattle versus Rodriguez, not Seattle, San Antonio case in 1973, education is not even a right for, for American citizens. So I think it starts from there. And if once it becomes codified as a right, then we can have a, the conversation about how do you make sure that every ch that zip code doesn't correlate with, with destiny, that, that schools aren't funded solely based off property taxes, that, that, that the least qualified, the least experienced, the non-credential teachers are teaching the kids who are starting out a little bit more behind, but how, and how do we reverse that? So again, big issue, but there are like data-driven solutions that don't, aren't necessarily easy, are necessary if we're truly serious about using education as a lever to help equal the playing field. Yeah, you touched on the fact that education and policing are somewhat intertwined, and I think all these issues relating to institutional racism are somewhat intertwined, and I want to direct this question at Mayor Benjamin. At 29 years old, it was 1999, uh, Governor Jim Hodges appointed you as the cabinet, uh, to the cabinet as director of the state's second largest law enforcement agency. It was the Department of Probation, Parole, and Pardon Services. So as it relates to criminal justice reform, you know, going beyond policing, you know, what effect does it have in, in African-American communities and minority communities uh, when, when we're putting people in jail for nonviolent crimes, when, when children in the African-American community are growing up you know, without fathers in the home sometimes? How do we change that system to break this cycle of poverty and this cycle as it relates to you know, poor education circumstances uh, within the African-American community? Well, well, I think obviously just the fact that you're asking the question is, is, a, is a wonderful step forward. Um, so, 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 so many folks have refused to, um, to connect the dots uh, of, of, of what the effect of, of long-term policy decisions, uh, the, the fact that we spend $200 billion a year on, on police and prosecutors in prisons, and, and, and we've been able to, uh, um, uh, to, uh, to, to profit. Uh, because of a, a number of these industries. I, I, I literally just took a call from, from Governor Hodges, who um, 20 years later, he still, he still thinks I work for him. And he, he, some of you may know him. He is, he's my dear friend and been a great, a great mentor. But he gave me an opportunity as a, as a very young individual uh, to step into a, a, a place I've been prepared as a political science major, as a, as a young lawyer, uh, very, very altruistic, and had all these ideas about these theories I'd learned to actually put them into action running our state's second largest law enforcement agency and be able to show people that you can actually create safe communities. Uh, we, were, we were unrepentant about making sure that people are held accountable, particularly those that, that, that had, had been engaged in, in, in violent crimes, but at the very same time that we had to make sure people were able to reintegrate in, in, into society and, and, and give them a chance uh, to live up to their God-given potential. Uh, so we worked with the NAACP and others to get people re-registered to vote uh, we, we, we were required um, uh, uh, and work, we established some programs that actually brought people back into the American economic mainstream, gave them jobs. And, and it, was, it, was a, it was a wonderful uh, opportunity to do so. But I think uh, the, the, the basis of your question is, is also the answer to your question, recognizing that each of these things are, are inextricably uh, interlinked and that, that we are um, uh, all um, connected and, and uh, relationships are interdependent. 
and, and so that in order to, to deal with these things, it's going to take investment. It's going to take thoughtful policy. That policy is going to have to be human, uh, humanized and compassionate, um, but but very in, in, intentional. I think. I mean, um, uh, and and realize that some of these solutions are not going to happen overnight. That that it, it took us literally several centuries uh, to get here. Um, and so it's going to take us time uh, to turn the corner. But there are some things that we can do today, right now, to start building on on, on those communities. And I, I will tell you, just as you know. Uh, some of, I've, I've spent a lot of my time uh, in, in elementary schools, uh, even since my, my children left elementary school. I, I've been in over 300 uh, different classrooms since I, I started my term as mayor. I love being around children and I love being around senior citizens. Everybody in between I can take or give on, on any given day. Uh, but, but when you're around these children, particularly as Michael said, when they're very young, you can see the hope and aspiration and the promise and the gifts uh, when the kids don't, aren't, aren't, the little boys aren't, aren't, aren't too old, they don't, they don't, they, they still want to hug you and grab you and, and tell you uh, how awesome you are and how proud they are. You look at the, at the face of this African-American man and they're, and they're still trying to figure out how in the world did you become the mayor of our city? Uh, it, it is a special time. And then we allow them to lose that because they're dealing with issues that I didn't have to deal with as a child. I never had to worry about safety or security. Or, or, or shelter. Uh, I didn't have to, uh, we, we, we lived in a rough neighborhood, but a very stable household with, with a, a dad who woke up in the morning early, uh, didn't leave the house, like give me a, a, a kiss and came home late at night after his third job sometimes and, and, and had hugs and we, we slept late at night and watched the honeymoon together. And a mother uh, who, who complimented him and made him a much better man, they're still uh, together after 54 years, uh, he still bossed me around too. But, 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 but every child that had that so then you have to step up and say, so what's the role of a, of a civilized society? What's the role of a loving and compassionate community to stand in the gap and put as best as we can the structures in place to make sure this kid gets the same shot he has? These children nowadays, I will tell you, are much more talented, much more intelligent, digital native than Steve Benjamin ever was. Um, so it's my job to give him a shot. And that's what I'm going to do. Next question before I let Anthony get back in here. I'm having too much fun engaging with you guys on this. But you guys have both been very focused on job creation and economic empowerment as tools to help lift your constituents out of poverty and, and create uh, more equal outcomes. Um, so Mayor Benjamin, in your first term alone, you cut the unemployment rate in half uh, in your metropolitan area. Um, what are examples of programs either that we're doing today that you think we should ramp up and increasingly focus on? One example being opportunity zones, which I know you guys have both been involved with, but what are other types of programs? And, and as an example for Mayor Tubbs, uh, you, you've been involved at the municipal level in one of the first pilot programs for a version of universal basic income. It's in Stockton, it's called SEED. So I'll let Mayor Tubbs, you start with this. What are specific economic programs that we need to focus on and need to ramp up in order to create sort of a domestic Marshall Plan to, to help create more equal outcomes? No, um, great question. Um, number one, I think in terms of opportunity zones, Part of the issues in California there's not yet tax conformity with kind of state and federal taxes. So it's been hard to marshal interest. And I think also just having a version 2.0 that's actually more tailored to real underserved communities, I think would be a big benefit in terms of using capital and free enterprise as a way to, to, to lift votes. Um, in terms of, of the basic income demonstration, one of the things I've been most surprised about is how 
money is a function of time. So what we've seen is that with the $500, we just allow people to have more agency over their time. So there's folks like um, a gentleman named Tomas who talks about how the first $500 a month was enough for him to interview for a job. And I asked him, like, what does that mean? And he said, well, I work retail. And because I work retail, I'm not able to have like a set schedule. I don't have paid time off. I have two kids, so I can't take a risk and bet on myself and be entrepreneurial because doing so may mean the rent's not paid for this month. And I don't have a rich dad. I don't have a real safety net to follow. I am the safety net. And he said the $500 was enough for him to take two days off work to interview. And he ended up getting a better job with more pay, benefits, unionized, et cetera. Um, and I, for me, that story is just telling because I think when I think about sort of a basic income or income floor, I think about sort of our society being an angel investor in all of us and saying that, hey, we can't control who your parents are. We, we can't control the circumstances of your birth. But what we can do is make sure you have a shot, like, that you have some sort of underpinning, you have some sort of foundation that then you can put your feet down and buy boots and buy shoestrings to pull yourself up um, by, by your bootstrap. So I definitely think part of this conversation has to have some sort of an income floor um, for everyone, particularly when we consider that an equal pace is where people start. Um, the, the, another program or series of programs I, I like to see ramped up are really just policy discussions. We know that minimum wage has not kept up with the cost of living. We know that in 99% of counties in this country, you cannot afford housing with the current minimum wage, which means we have to lift the floor, we have to increase wages so that when people are working, they're actually working and able to provide and pay. It makes no sense to have people working two or three jobs and still not be able to pay for basic necessities. Um, and, and then I think that the third thing, um, particularly around conversations we're having just about kind of job guarantees, which I think make, make a lot of sense. And, but also we have to have, if you look at what Mayor Bloomberg proposed in his campaign with the Greenwood Initiative, just real targeted specific loan programs, capacity building programs for entrepreneurs. I think going to Stanford, being in Silicon Valley, there's a caricature of what an entrepreneur is, but the most entrepreneurial people I've ever met are the people in my neighborhood in Stockton who are selling tamales or, or, or selling things that are now legal that once were illegal, but, but who have shown a business acumen in mind and just don't have access to capital, don't have access to um, to, to, the, to the teaching, but, but have the same grit, resilience, creativity, ingenuity that my classmates at Stanford have. So I do think kind of targeted investments for investing in supporting entrepreneurs in communities that have been particularly impacted by police violence and other forms of violence like poverty would also make a big difference. Mayor Benjamin, do you have anything to add to that? Just, just very quickly, I know we're running short on time. The, um, we tried to lead from the front and lead by example. Um, our city is a unique place, state government, largest army training base in the world, universities and, and colleges. So a significant amount of our property is not in tax rolls. So we, we, we're always working with a certain a limited amount of resources. So it was important to me uh, as commercial interests carry a significant share of the tax burden to run a, a, just a tight ship. We finished eight of the last 10 years of the budget surplus, never raised taxes. We've actually cut taxes by 12 mils. We've been creating an environment where Private step to capital feels uh, welcome. It hits the ground. You treat it well, and, we, and we've been able to welcome um, a billion dollars of capital investment into our city. We invest in our city. Uh, 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 Seven hundred and fifty million in water, sewer, and stormwater uh, investments. 
and the work that Michael's talking about, uh, our leadership on collective leadership on opportunity zones, we try to make sure that when we make those investments, uh, that that we ask of our partners, and 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 we 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 dig deep into the community to make sure these jobs are available to folks who live and and make the the community uh, special. Uh, there are a number of great efforts out there around the UBI that that Michael's been leading on. Uh, been doing some work with the Aspen Institute around income volatility and ways in which we can just help people stabilize. Uh, we uh, we uh, developed a wonderful program a few years ago called Work It Up, in which you go to one side of town and folks, employers say they can't find employees, and you go to the other side of town and people say they can't find jobs. And it's your job to be an ambassador and try and connect those dots, making sure people have the skill set, but employers understand they're not going to get perfect individuals who, uh, in my faith tradition, only, only one perfect person has ever walked the face of the earth, and, and he's not here right now. Well, he's here, but he's not here. Uh, uh, you know, so, um, so working to connect those dots to, again, have everyone participate in the largesse of, of, a, of, a, of America. Um, I'm also a huge proponent of, of public-private partnerships. I think, I think smart P3s, particularly in the economic environment in which we're operating right now, where state and local governments are going to see a $1 trillion shortfall over the next year, are giving a thoughtful, and they have to be, be public-private, and sometimes public-private philanthropic partnerships. Uh, giving cities and, and states and local governments, political subdivisions, the opportunity to unlock the capital they have locked up in, in, in some of these assets is a huge opportunity that six months ago, when, 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 when folks weren't thinking that UBI, um, uh, the, the, the Michael and his crew, it was real, but now post CARES Act, people, okay, maybe there's something really serious here we should be thinking about. People thought that uh, universal health care, and I'm, I'm, I'm with Mike, we were on the same team for the presidential election. I'm not a Bernie guy. Uh, at, at all, uh, but but um, the discussions around um, uh, universal health care being unaffordable, unsustainable, even if you put a $1 trillion price tag on it, well, I'll tell you guys, uh, we're, we're about three to $4 trillion in, in, in hock right now uh, as we go. You know, so a, a budget and the way in which we lead is a reflection of our values and the thing that, things that we value. So we're going to have to really start thinking very creatively around P3s, around opportunity zones, around, around UBI. Uh, around ways in which we can all win. And if we reimagine everything, well, we, we can do much better than we have been over the last uh, several years. I know I said I was going to kick it back to Anthony, but I have one more question uh, before we wrap up. And, and I'll start it with Mayor Tubbs, but it's because it's a generational question, but it's also just a societal question about, it's sort of going back to what we talked about at the beginning. And I want to leave everybody on an optimistic tone is that, you know, it feels a little bit different now, the, the uh, social activism that we've seen and the, the commitment to change from various parties. I mean, you see something like NASCAR finally coming out and, and leading from the front uh, on, on racial issues. And, you know, I'm, I'm from North Carolina, Mayor, uh, Mayor Benjamin, you're in South Carolina. So, you know, these issues are, are things we're familiar with. But Mayor Tubbs, I'll start with you from a generational perspective. Do you think that millennials as a result of you know racial issues and just uh, the pandemic might have caused some of this as well do you think millennials are going to be more engaged in the social and political uh, landscape going forward as a result of some of the things we've seen recently and what impact do you think that's going to have on the country and then mayor benjamin i want you to follow up uh, just to talk about whether you think you know this movement that we're feeling right now you have people like lebron james other big athletes and celebrities that are you know those groups have always made a push to help uh, with voter uh, rights and, and things like that, but it seems like there is a more cohesive and, and energized effort uh, to address those things. We'll start with Mayor Tubbs. I sure hope so. Um, the reason why I got involved with government is because I realized that 
I'm going to be around to live with a lot of the consequences today, <laughs> have the decisions to make today in my um, older years. And I just want to be part of that. I'll, I'll be here to deal with the, the, the repercussions and the action. So I hope millennials, G, the Zoomers, and everyone just realizes that no, like we, we can't wait, that, that it's on us. And we have to work with those who are older, but we have to be part of this decision-making table because I just don't want to have to be fighting the same fights in the, in the same way, talking about the same issues 20, 30 years from now. Um, so I think a lot of people feel, feel the same way. And I think it, particularly if you think of um, millennials, most of us were born, we were 10, 11 years old when 9-11 happened. We were entering into college or entering into the labor market when the first Great Recession happened in 08. Um, for many of us, the, the only two presidents we've known have been, that we voted for are Barack Obama and, and, and Donald Trump. We grew up in a time where Oscar Grant, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, every month a new hashtag. We, we, we grew up seeing Colin Kaepernick being blacklisted from the NFL for protesting. So I think that those formative experiences have, have the hopefully have the impact of getting people involved in the political process and the political system and exerting sort of rights to vote and rights to run for office to kind of get us to where we need to be as a society. John, I'm, I'm, John, I'm, I'm encouraged by um, millennial leadership and the Zoomers as well. Um, as you might be able to deduce from our conversation and banter, Michael and I talk, text, or email almost every day, uh, maybe every, every other day. And he's representative of a, of a, of a, of a group of, of friends and, and leaders, both men and women, um, particularly, obviously, we engage with mayors, but amazing uh, leaders in Birmingham and Jackson and, and, uh, and gosh, in, in Atlanta, uh, Charlotte and um, uh, Shreveport. I mean, just some, some really talented young leaders who are seeing the world very differently, uh, but also have the wisdom of, of, of being you know, students of history. And we're, and we're we're benefiting from that in a in a, in a, in a very significant way. I'm also excited. Uh, what we we engage with a number of different um, individuals, including some of the athletes uh, that you mentioned, like LeBron and uh, James and others. Uh, I, I think it, what, what's what's coolest about that is to recognize that you, and you guys know you sit down with a group of of, of athletes, and particularly some African American athletes. You'll find independents. You'll find Democrats. You'll find Republicans. I mean, they're, 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 to be able to respect the heterogeneity of the of the group is really cool. You find some who uh, who, who who believe strongly in the capital markets, and some you know um, who, who who may be at the other end of the spectrum. But they all seem really at this moment to focus on human dignity, uh, to be focused on inclusion, uh, to be focused on economic prosperity for for communities that that have been uh, disenfranchised to really be focused on, on making sure that people have the right to the franchise and are able to participate in American elections as, as one of their constitutional and God-given rights. So that's the exciting time. And I, and I, I, I do believe that with the leadership of, uh, of folks and, and, and um, Michael's generation, I, I think America is gonna be in a better place. Uh, I, I really do. Well, well thank you again, uh, both of you so much for joining us. Anthony, do you have any final thoughts? No, well, I, I, I want the duck back now. Guys, this guy has like a fake duck. He's been uh, sitting behind him for like the last seven salt talks. But when the duck was there, he wasn't talking. Now the duck's not there and all he's doing is talking. So I, I sort of want the duck back. But it, but I had it, to make but, sure we asked all the right follow-up questions. It's oh, too oh, interesting I, I, and, and I important the conversation. He, he thinks he has standing because he's from the South. But listen, guys. Uh, you're doing an enormous service to our country and your public service is uh, 
exemplary. So on behalf of everybody that listens to these uh, Saul Talks and all of our delegates, I just want to personally thank you. Uh, you're true patriots, and I know our country is headed for a better place because of men and women like you guys.